This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. The year is 2007. And I'm a podcaster, ladies and gentlemen. I have numerous concerns spread across these Google Docs of the films that you have selected as the best of all time. But today, we'll talk about one. There will be blood. Hi, everybody. I am Paul Shear, uh, joined as always by my friend and also an often critic for the New York Times, Amy Nicholson. Amy, how are you? Paul, I am fine. I'm absolutely fine. And you? I'm doing well. I'm following you on threads. You you get now you're getting on the thread bandwagon. I know it's a couple weeks in. You are the earliest adopter to threads I ever saw. You were the first person I saw make a thread. Because I was on threads before it was actually released to the public. I was one of the first thousand people in there chatting with uh some people as they were working the bugs out. Um before we start talking about our third selection from our audience listener picks, I wanted to go back an episode or two uh, and play this clip that Corey Landis sent us. Corey uh, wanted to show us the proper way to do the please from Roger Rabbit. So take a listen to Corey showing us how it's done. Hi, guys. Uh, always enjoy the podcast. Just started the one about Roger Rabbit, and I just stopped because I felt it necessary to show you how Charles Fleischer does the pup 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 thing, uh, because I was in uh, f- fifth grade at the time, and I was obsessed with it, and I sort of figured out how to do it, and so it's all in the cheeks. Please! So it's not pup 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 pup. It's daddy. It's like that. Still got it. Still got it after all these years. Not bad, right? Not bad. I need to work on this. I tried it again this week, and my boyfriend was like, I think you were trying to do Roger Rabbit, but was that Roger Rabbit? (laughs) You know, 
this is a movie, speaking about voices, that I think is a fun voice to try to do. This Daniel Plainview, here it is. And we... Daniel Plainview, here it is. <laughs> well, you can't just say the same thing. After that, well, I'm, I was nervous uh, to fuck it up compared <laughs> to you. Come on. <laughs> but it, Fine, give me a sentence to say as Daniel Plainview, and I'll try um, it. How about uh, Welcome to Unspooled? Welcome to Unspooled. That's pretty good. I think in a weird way, whenever you have a character that is this big, like Daniel Day-Lewis is doing here, and it's not big in the sense of it's broad, but it's big in the sense it's easy to parody and clip onto, that you start to lose some of the gravitas that this film has. Like, I think that this character of Daniel Plainview, I'm a podcast, I'm an oil man, you know, starts to lose <laughs> some of its power in the memification he of it. He blends into Bane. Yes, he blends into oh, he does. Tom yes, Bane. which, <laughs> but I wanted to really get into the idea of like, what's really behind this movie? Like, what... What are the themes that are at play here? Because I think that the performance is so large that there are other things being said that I think kind of fall to the to the wayside because it's just sort of a wrecking ball is going through this movie that you can't take your eyes off of. This entire film, you know, is about watching a true master at the top of his craft. I don't know if you're talking about Paul Thomas Anderson or Daniel Day-Lewis, and I don't know if it honestly makes a difference. <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis, so good that there was a picture back in 2006, it was on Ain't It Cool News, or maybe it was on Coffee and Cigarettes, a PTA website, uh, of a character from this film. They're like, oh my gosh, look at how Daniel Day-Lewis has transformed himself. And people are like, yes, I see it. He did a fake nose. He did this. It wasn't Daniel Day-Lewis. It was just another actor in the movie, but people were so convinced. People bought into this idea. <laughs> Paul, it's time I tell you, I am actually Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> but I will say that what I found hard about this movie, and we talked about this last week with Hot Fuzz, is it's a departure from what we are or have expected from Paul Thomas Anderson. And I think, you know, the first 20 minutes is aggressively telling you this is not Punch Drunk Love. This is not Boogie Nights. This is not Southern California, even though it kind of is a, in, a, in a way. Uh, yeah, it is kind of the grave of where Magnolia might be. Right. A little further south, uh, kind of Huntington Beach. But this is truly, I think, the beginning of another level of PTA movies that we're going to get. Um, a really interesting career, but I think that this movie looks beautiful and there's a an alchemy in the entire casting here. We're gonna get into this and like, and the rumors behind who was fired or if that kid was actually an actor or just a regular kid, we're going to really kind of break down a lot of the stuff that I think doesn't really get talked about because once again, it's DDL time. It's true. It's hard to talk about this movie without spending all of your time talking about Daniel Day Lewis. And yet it cannot be underlined enough that if you're sitting down in the theater in 2007, I remember this feeling this is not what you associate with Paul Thomas Anderson. This is not the type of movie that you associate with him. You associate rumpled pants and lots of people crammed into a frame and lots of stuff going on at all times and plot, 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 and story, 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 and all of these moments and humanity coming together in this lovable, bungable, messy thrill where you love and hate and torn and blah, 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 and all of these things are happening at once. And also a pop soundtrack. This movie is just the opposite on every single level. Stark simple, few characters, not a lot of cutting back and forth between a ton of action. It is 
as minimal as anybody could have expected from Paul Thomas Anderson. And yet somehow it feels even bigger than a movie that has like seven times the performances. And I guess the question we're going to come up against a few times is, is this a great movie or is this a great performance? And without any further ado, let's unspool it! The year is 2007, and Daniel Day-Lewis hasn't released a movie in two years. Honestly, that's nothing. Paul Thomas Anderson hasn't released a movie in five years, not since the Adam Sandler romance Punch Drunk Love. Surely the film world must be thrilled that Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Thomas Anderson, two men who are both frequently called geniuses, want to work together on a big American epic, right? No. The movie they want to make is loosely inspired by the Upton Sinclair book, Oil. That's oil with an exclamation point. Maybe I should be like, oil. And that book is itself loosely inspired by three larger-than-life Los Angeles figures from history. The oil baron Edward Doheny, his son Ned, they were both tangled up in scandal and murder, and also the very famous religious huckster Amy Semple McPherson, whose temple is still here in Echo Park. I'll I'll tell you, I'll tell you. But according to Daniel Day-Lewis, Paul Thomas Anderson thought their movie would be a blockbuster. Daniel Day-Lewis thought, quote, we were making a movie that would have us sort of drummed out of town. There is no woman, no romance, no nothing, just fucking filthy guys digging holes in the ground. It looks like the people funding movies thought Daniel Day-Lewis was right because it takes them two years to raise the money to make this film. Daniel Day-Lewis says that he invested those two years preparing for the role. And the final film is called There Will Be Blood. It's set in California, shot in Marfa, Texas, and tells the story of a minor turned oil man named Daniel Plainview. That's Daniel Day-Lewis and his young adopted son, H.W., played by first-timer and only-timer, Dylan Frazier. Daniel does not like anyone telling him what to do, and only a few people even have the guts to try. One of them is a preacher named Eli Sunday, played by Paul Dano, and the two stubborn men wage a decades-long battle over the soul of America. Does this country belong to the capitalists or the Christians? Well, the movie came out the day after Christmas, December 26, 2007. So in honor of that specific holiday, I'm going to say both, Christians and capitalists. Uh, But the film did go on to win Daniel Day-Lewis the second of his three Oscars. If you think fast, the other two are... Mila Foot and Lincoln, yes. Uh, but it lost most of the other major awards to the other film that was shot in Marfa that year, The Coen Brothers and No Country for Old Men. But no matter. There Will Be Blood was instantly heralded as a masterpiece, even though at the time Roger Ebert was like, Blood is the kind of film that's easily called great. I am not sure of its greatness. Well, that's a lot to untangle that I guess we'll be doing today. But what was in the zeitgeist that December 26, 2007? It was... An Alicia Keys song. A jam that I'm sure you'll remember as soon as you hear it. It sounds a little bit like this. Now, you might be asking, Amy, you just threw that song out there. No one. That's a good song. I don't know why. Is there any Alicia Keys connection here at all? And I will tell you, I thought very hard about this, long and hard about this, and I finally realized something. What do you got? 
that just like Daniel Plainview, Alicia Keys herself has become a bit of an oil man, a bit of a huckster, a bit of a salesman, a bit of a pitchman. What a reach. It is, but it also isn't because Alicia Keys now sells a line of skincare products, including something called Sacred Body Oil. The woman literally sells oil. And here she is, like Daniel Plainview, telling you why you got to take her seriously. There's not a lot of attention given to soul care. You know, we have nail care, we have hair care, we have air care, we have skin care, we have a million cares, but we don't talk about soul care. And that was just like a light bulb to me. It made so much sense because the more that I started caring about my inner, the more my outer started to be beautiful. Amy, (laughs) you done did it. You did it again. You found the most tenuous connection imaginable. And I applaud you for it. Um, You know, it's interesting you were saying that this movie had trouble raising financing because it is, as of 2012, uh, the most profitable Paul Thomas Anderson movie that he had made. It made $76 million. That's three times the budget. So this movie was a hit. And I'm guessing whoever invested made their money back. I guess so. Although Hollywood math. Hollywood math. Well, Hollywood math, basically, all you have to know is no one makes a profit. Uh, That's what they will tell you, unless you make them open the books. And then you might find that you did make a little bit of a profit. But they're going to make sure that you will not see a profit. Just like Lord of the Rings, when Peter Jackson had to sue New Line to be like, I'm pretty sure Lord of the Rings was profitable. Like, no, it wasn't. Then they opened the books and (laughs) it was very profitable. Uh, But you know what? That's the kind of tenacity that this movie is about. Uh, Capitalist society. This kind of idea of, of working so hard and wanting to keep everything to yourself. And it's interesting rewatching this movie because I agree with what, Roger Ebert said, is it a great film? Structurally, this is a very interesting film. It's it's snapshots of moments, right? Throughout this person's life. It's a, it's a character piece. And there's something about it that builds this anticipation. The, the pacing, the, the twists and turns are different than you would expect in a normal movie. But I think that it builds in this way where at the end, end of the film, and I've seen this movie multiple times, I was on the edge of my seat watching it. The last 40 minutes, I am, I can't take my eyes off the screen. And I think that's the thing about this movie. It sneaks up on you because that first 15 minutes of silence. Silence and wine, this wine right here that makes you nervous. And that's Johnny Greenwood. That's Johnny Greenwood who did the original soundtrack to this. He couldn't get nominated for an Oscar for this movie because he reused pieces of other works, which sucks because the score is phenomenal. I mean, it is it is as much of a character as the characters themselves. No, but it, like it really does. It does set a tone. And I, I want to talk about this opening, this first 15 minutes, this beginning because I think that this is the key, the Rosetta Stone to the entire film. And, you know, maybe other directors might go past this, but I really want to dig in just like Daniel Plainview and talk about why this is so important. All right, baby, I got my pickaxe. Take me there. All right. This opening, we are 
alone with this man. And all we are seeing is a miserable existence. We are seeing in this miserable existence a tenacity, a repetition, a drive, a drive for a one in a million shot. Will there be something here? The way that he hits that wall, hoping to find something. And when you watch it a second time, a third time, I think that this starts to come out. You start to see everything that you need to know about Daniel Plainview when he's in that hole. And what I think about a lot when I watch this movie is the moment where he breaks his leg. He breaks his leg and he finds gold at the same time. He's completely alone. And you look around at the vistas and it's completely empty. There's not a person in sight. And this man somehow raised himself out of that hole, which we see, and then gets to town. I mean, that's a movie in itself. Just Daniel Day-Lewis with a broken leg getting to town. And in this opening, we understand everything. This is a man who on a broken leg will crawl into town, will never give up, will fight to the bitter end for success. It is ingrained in him. He is a hard worker. He is someone that you never want to face. He is stronger than you mentally. He is stronger than you physically. He is 100% a driven human being. like, And no one else in this movie comes close to the drive that he has because he is truly someone who has been self-made. He's not rich. He's not falling into this company. Like He found it. He invested it. And yes, he's a liar and he's a bastard and he's evil. But you have to respect this man and what he did after this. Almost everything else is forgivable. There are times when I I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. I want to earn enough money I can get away from everyone. I see the worst in people, Henry. I don't need to look past seeing them to get all I need. I mean, he's driven, and he's driven in a way that is also defiant. Yes. You know, the very first thing he says in the entire movie, right here, is no. (sighs) No. I find that fascinating because what is he saying no to? Is he say who is he talking to? What is he saying no about? Where is that no guided in the universe? Who's the target of that no? Is the no just him telling the universe, no, I don't die here? Because in that opening sequence, there's two times he probably should have just died, that almost any other man would have died. A, in the fall, and B, in the climb on his back across. We don't even know how long it is. We know it's further than we can see. To get to town, and we know that there's mountains, and we know that it's all scrub brush, and we know that there's no roads. For almost anybody, for me, for me, I'm very lazy. That's a yes to death. 
yes, death, take me. I'm not doing this. I can't do this. And do you see how happy he is when he is laying on the ground in the surveyor's office? His leg is now not in a cast, but kind of uh, in some sort of device. And there's a smile on his face. And he is not far away from that gold at any given point. He is not going to let anyone get a leg up on him. Even with one leg tied to Even with one leg, yes. (laughs) Even with unusable (laughs) legs. That opening is just cutting very dramatically from bright sunlight to the darkest hole. You know, bright to dark, light to dark. Like where he is, is in the darkness, you know? And that's where he belongs, in the darkness. This person who is just absolutely alone and putting in the work. You don't even hear insects when you're in the bottom of the pit. You hear absolutely nothing. It is dead silent except for the sounds that he is making with his tools. And his tools are the only thing even adding light into the darkness. There's those little sparks of flint from his pickaxe in there. Like, okay, when most people say that they exemplify the American dream, I'm like, whatever. You got to check from your parents. Whatever. Fine. You know, but this actually is the story that I think people who claim to be representing the American dream tell themselves they actually lived. I pulled myself up on my bootstraps. Yeah. I got there. I found the work. I did the work. And this is the American dream. He pulls himself up literally. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. This is Gil Ozeri. You may know me as the guy who eats food over a garbage can or my wife's cute little companion with the ass that won't quit. Or you may know me from Comedy Bang Bang. I play Dr. Sweet Chat and Ned Bellinella, the busiest man, or Irving Sardinas. Uh, Anyway, I just wanted to say how much I'm going to miss Scott now that he's dead. What? What do you mean he's not dead? Well, whose funeral was that? What? Who the hell is Gary? Wow, okay. Well, I guess I want to wish Comedy Bang Bang a happy 15th anniversary. Wow, I always have the best time on CBB. It is so much fun to do. And Scott makes me feel warm and welcome and extra wet. So here's to another 15 years. Keep listening to Comedy Bang Bang wherever you get your podcasts. Ruba, go do it. That's right, Ruba. They should go do it. Yes. They should, Ruba, right? Yes. Shouldn't they? No. What do you mean, no? Yes. That's what I'm saying. Ruba, go do. Yes, Ruba, go do. Ruba, go do. That's right, Ruba, go do. Here's my question to you. Is Daniel Plainview a vampire? (laughs) Right? Here he is, dark from the depths of hell, in only happy, surrounded by this dark, and this, and he's sucking life from the earth, pulling this, this blood from the earth. This is a person who is sucking 
the blood out of Mother Earth. So are all capitalist vampires? Is that kind of the message here? And I think that we'll get into it in a little bit. His big nemesis also is feeding off of other people, right? These are about success stories where your success comes from taking something from others, whether it's trust, whether it's literal oil. The only way that capitalism succeeds is by basically taking something that we all have and manipulating it and monetizing it. Man, now I'm like, is there any way of anybody succeeding that doesn't take away from anybody anywhere? Like if you get your dream job, it means because somebody else didn't. Being a capitalist is a great American horror story. I mean, this movie is a horror movie. I mean, the way that he walks, the way that he talks, the way he looks, he is a monster. One of those villains, when we talked about Mike Myers in the Halloween episodes, like who slowly walks into a room, that's Daniel Day-Lewis. He holds himself, like he doesn't have to move fast. He just moves with purpose. He moves with this energy, this force. He is, to me, not one of the all-time great characters, one of the all-time great horror characters. That is fascinating. When Paul Thomas Anderson would talk about this with Daniel Day-Lewis, that's really the genre that they kept kind of hammering home. Is like, we're making a horror film. We're making a boxing oh. movie. Those are the two things they kept boxing toggling back and forth between. Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. I guess. Yeah. That's almost the genre they see it in. Well, now I just want to do like, not an AI version of this because fuck AI. But like, if AI could put Nosferatu's face over this entire movie, would it just make sense? You'd be like, well, he'd burn up to death, pushing himself along the back, going to town. So give him a little AI umbrella. <laughs> But yet, this vampire, this evil man that we've just talked about, this driven at all costs, money over everything person, does have a love. And and Daniel Day-Lewis says, oh, well, this movie is going to drive us out of town. There's no romance. Well, I would argue there is a romance. And that romance, and maybe it's a wrong term for it, maybe it's just love, is between him and H.W., I mean, him and H.W., this son that is not his own, but he takes as his own. And I think that he takes him as his own consciously because of what he says at the end. I, I had to take you so people would trust me. But when you see them on the train, nothing in this movie is not intentional, right? This movie is incredibly intentional, incredibly specific. And when you see the two of them on that train, that baby playing with Daniel Plainview's mustache. That is the most open. That is the most care that we see of these two. We see it a few times in the film. And I think that there are two things at play, like one being... That the baby's drunk because he gives the baby bourbon. So the baby's like, hey, Hey, the baby's like a sorority girl at a bar. What's up? (laughs) But I do think he can't trust people. And he could trust the baby. So it's the only person he can actually be open to. The baby's not going to try to steal his gold. That's why I think the end of the movie is so sad because his son is going to open his own well. And in his warped mind, well, now you're my aunt. I mean, what a baby can't do is a baby can't talk back or disagree with him. And he raises a son who, for the most part, does not talk back or disagree with him for a very long time. He raises a son who kind of acts a little bit like a like a mobile baby. I walk next to you. I nod. I listen to what you're saying. He doesn't act like a whiny, petulant kid 
Like I'm imagining a kid at a kid at Disneyland right now who's like, I'm hot and I want a corn dog. And I don't want to wait in this line. Like there is none of that in young HW. No, you're right. HW is this model of perfection. He stands at his father's side. He does his father's bidding. H.W. and his father have this bond, and I think you see it when he goes deaf from the explosion. The way that Plainview relates to him is not typical of how we see Daniel Plainview. It, it is fully physical and emotional, and it's almost too much for him to bear. And, and I find something really interesting because Daniel Plainview loves this child, clearly loves this child. But when he goes deaf, Daniel Plainview never makes any attempt to communicate with him in a way that he would understand. I'm not saying that he'd have to learn sign language, because I think that that's beyond the scope of what Daniel Plainview would do. Well, he would learn sign language if he was trying to buy oil from people who didn't understand him. And he I could agree. only yes. communicate in sign language. Yes. He would be writing theses in sign language if it would benefit <laughs> him financially. But there's something I was watching, his interaction with the son when the son can't hear, he never gestures with his hands. He never changes anything that he does. He never makes it easy for him. And even when they're older, right. he makes fun of him. Like he's trying to, at the end of it, he and his son are trying to hold a conversation. He's refusing to learn sign language still. So like, even though his son is a grown up now, he has to go through one of his buddies. Like Daniel Plainview's own buddy became a sign language fluent. So he could talk to Daniel Plainview's son and yet, Daniel Plainview not only refuses to bow to this idea that he should have ever tried to learn how to communicate with his son, like his best friend did, he insists that his son talk to him, use his way of speech. I know you and I have disagreed over many things. I'd rather keep you as my father than my partner. Then say it. If you've got something to say to me, then say it. I'd like to hear you speak instead of your little dog. Woof, 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 woof. I'm going to Mexico with my wife. I'm going away from you. H.W. is the only person in this movie that looks out for Daniel Plainview. The only person that is trying to protect him. When he looks at the journal of that man who is pretending to be Daniel Plainview's brother, he doesn't know how to communicate it, so he tries to light him on fire. And Daniel Plainview sends him away. I don't think he sends him away because he is mad that he let the house on fire. I think he sends him away because, well, I had this love and now it's kind of busted. And now I have this other person who can fill that void. And that's why I think he's so betrayed by his brother and his brother reveals that. Um, but I don't want to get into that brother right yet. I just want to say that this boy, H.W., they have a relationship where he can be physical with him. He can be honest with him. He can be quiet with him and do the work with him. And as much as they are a team, Daniel Plainview is never truly able to go that extra mile. And this is why I want to say HW, human worker. Human worker? Because that's a phrase people say? I was reaching, but I'll say this, <laughs> the idea that like, this is like a capitalist idea, right? The idea that the boss never truly will get in the muck 
with their workers and understand what they're going through. So his human worker. <laughs> his sure, human worker. human work. It's catchy. Right? Uh, whenever you put human <laughs> before anything, it sounds better. I remember that was like a, a, a writing yeah. tip that somebody who wrote for The Onion told me. It's like, if you said, oh, they found a hand on the beach, it's not as funny as they found a human hand on the beach. And I totally agree with that. <laughs> um, so wait, are you going to tell me that PTA stands for person thinking a lot? Hey, I'll take it. Clearly he does. <laughs> but we don't see many workers for Daniel Plainview. We don't see many relationships there. Like he's got a, a team of people that are out there, but they're all pretty faceless, right? Or they're disposable. Yeah. When when one dies, he goes, is it one of the ones I cared about? In essence? Right. But that's also part of the dynamic of what we see changing him from the beginning too, in that this is a man introduced, like we were talking about, very, very, very alone. I don't know if there's ever been a more alone person in the world, unless it was Tom Hanks. But no, even Tom Hanks on his island had a had a volleyball. So he's like about as alone as you get. And what he does immediately, like he gets that check for his first little nugget of ore. He gets $342, I think, for it. He uses that money to not be alone anymore because the next time you see him, he's got staff. He's not going to be alone. He buys his way out of being so solitary. He I'm buys like, hands. He buys hands. I think he buys. I, you don't get the vibe like, oh, he's having fun with these guys. It's like. No, 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 no. Yeah. But he he knows that what he needs to invest in is not being so alone. I'm not saying he's buying friends. I'm okay. saying he's buying bodies. I'm saying okay. he's buying himself people that he can use. Right. Yes. Yes. He's not like I'm buying myself kids. He's not like somebody like like getting a bunch of jawbreakers and going to school so that they can have friends at lunch. He's he's like did using you do that, his Amy? resources. I, wow, that did come across too true, didn't it? Um, <laughs> yes, I did. I used to sell candy out of my locker at school. Oh, but you sold. I gave it away because I was I was I was like like me, please. I'm really nice. Uh, he is being transactional, but also. What we see in his character throughout the entire rest of the film, once he gets his baby, you know, once he gets his tiny little baby and he baptizes it in oil, is we see this quest to not be alone. Because it's kind of like he's involved in a love triangle between his like fake son and his fake brother. You know, he needs one of them. This man does not want to go into meetings alone. This man knows when he goes and talks to townspeople, he needs to say over and over again, I'm not an alone person. I'm not some solo guy. This is, as he repeats, a family business. Now, this work that we do is very much a family enterprise. Uh, I work side by side with my wonderful son, H.W. I think one or two of you might have met him already. Uh, I encourage my men to bring their families as well. Of course, it makes for an ever so much more rewarding life for them. Family means children. Children means education. So wherever we set up camp, Education is a necessity, and we're just so happy to take care of that. So let's build a wonderful school in Little Boston. These children are the future that we strive for, and so they should have the very best of things. So that's what I think is so striking about the beginning, is he's alone, 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 and he will not let himself be that alone ever again if he can help it. But I would argue that the only person that he takes with him that has any meaning is H.W. Everybody else is disposable this world around him changes. And I think that what he knows is he's smart enough to understand that he needs a beard. Like he needs something to make him look normal or he'll be 
ostracized or untrusted. Yeah, because people are going to ask about it all the time. Like yes. he's talking to people who believe in, you know, family. They're going to be like, hey, like they do here. What about your wife? Mr. Plainview, a question, sir. Where is your wife? She died in childbirth, Mrs. Bankside. So well, it's just me and my son now. He knows he needs to represent himself as a person who's not alone, which I think is interesting because we do have that image in this kind of by the bootstraps person of the I did do it alone. But if you have a wife and a child, it all of a sudden makes you so much more accessible, even if you're awful. It's like, well, they must have something nice in their life. And I do think that probably the instinct is let me create this fake life. People can connect the dots. I don't think that Daniel Day-Lewis is upset that his son has lost his hearing. I don't even think he's ultimately frustrated by it. I think that he is upset when his son wants to leave him. But his son basically says, I have to leave you because you're not even connecting with me. And I think that that's the push and pull of this relationship. Like, it's all one way. Obviously, it's not a healthy relationship. And I think that the son, when the son is in his mid-20s, is like, I understand this. This is a, this relationship is detrimental to me. He will always be higher as a figurehead than a son for Daniel Plainview. Like, he will never fully be able to share because he is that isolated, alone character. At his core, he is the vampire. He is alone as the vampire. Well, there's that guy, the kind of rival oil man, Mm -hmm. who calls out this dynamic in it, like, really early on, you know, trying to tell H.W., hey, he keeps calling you his partner. You need to get that, like, in writing, man. You got to watch your back. It must be easy when you have such a cute face to carry around with you. Telling me how handsome my son is? Well, that I am. That's very nice. Thank you. Good luck, Gene. Like I said, go east. H.W., I'll be your lawyer if you need to draw up a contract. Make sure you don't get swindled, boy. Get half what your dad's making. And I love when that big explosion happens where H.W. gets hurt because there's this tense buildup to it. You know, you're listening to the well right before then. He's like sitting over the well. I think they call it like a doghouse in the interview that they're doing about it. Like I heard it was like doghouse. Never heard that term before. But like he's looking at the well and we have time to listen to the mechanics of it. And the well is making noises that just make it sound alive. Like the well is a monster. Sound design in this movie is phenomenal. Oh, it's amazing. It's really, I think the sound design is like low-key superstar. But then the explosion happens. And what we hear in the music, in kind of the percussion sound that's like kind of drumming behind it, is I think we hear like the emotion and the tension and almost the heart racing that Daniel Plainview is feeling that his son is hurt. We hear it right there. Like that's almost as much emotion as, as I think we almost ever get out of Daniel Plainview in a lot of ways. Is the score carrying that work for him? Open the door. I mean, with that music, I thought, wow, this is an amazing scene. I remember feeling this way when I first saw it. Like, 
the oil is bursting out. There's an explosion. Things are on fire. But what Daniel cares about most in this moment is HW. Listen to that score. He's running to get him. He's running around at the boy in the arms. And then as soon as he's like, okay, the boy's alive, he leaves him. And he's like, what's everybody so miserable about? There's oil. And he runs back and he watches the fire till the morning. And even though he knows that his son is not okay because his son is begging him not to leave him. And the son is like, I can't hear my voice. I can't hear my voice. He doesn't go check on him. He stays with the fire. He watches it till the morning. It's a beautiful shot of that. And that to me, it kind of feels like as soon as he can, he sends the boy away. Like, let's just get this kid to school. I don't want him here. I can't handle this. Like, he was my perfect mini me. And if he's not that, I don't need this. Well, I think that because he refuses to get down on his level and understand why the boy would do that. Why would the boy do that? He literally set a trap right under that man's bed. He didn't take the time to believe that someone could be smart like he could be smart. But he won't get on that level. He won't get down to the human worker level. (laughs) (laughs) You are not going to make that phrase catch on. Uh, But I did find a clip, by the way, of Dylan, that actor, talking about how Paul Thomas Anderson directed him in that scene. He wanted me to really go, you know, into it and not over the top, you know, I, you know, I dare say, you know, just really kind of get into it. And that's where I didn't have a lot of uh, experience, you know, as far as like acting in general, you know, it was weird for me to have to, you know, really kind of overdo it, you know, right then. Yeah. Also, these things were like very weirdly difficult for Dylan because he was explaining he's kind of like a clean freak. He doesn't like feeling dirty. It was probably two, you know, two days. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But uh, any day that I had to do that, it was just miserable. I hated it. You know, I, I was always the kid that my mom tells this better than I do, but I would be, you know, outside playing, making mud pies or something when I was just a wee little three-year-old and come running inside and be freaking out because my hands are dirty, you know, and I can't touch anything. And I'm, making, <laughs> you know, I'm just, I was always real kind of weird about my hands and just being dirty. So, okay. um, you know, having to put all that, you know, fake oil on was just, ugh. <laughs> Oh, yeah. It's so funny, too. His mom, you know, this kid was just an elementary school student in near the location. They had to convince his mom to, like, let him be in the movie. And she didn't know who Daniel Day-Lewis was. And they she watched, like, Gangs of New York. And she's like, oh, my God. I, no, I, I, I no, he, my son can't spend all this time with the butcher. And then they, like, found a copy of Age of Innocence. And I go, watch this. And, like, and she's like, oh, okay, now I like it. Um, <laughs> yeah, but no, there's some funny stories about how this kid got cast. Because, like... They said that they didn't want any Hollywood actors. Like at first they kind of looked at the usual kids with headshots and they just didn't think any of them looked like they could be natural walking through underbrush. You know, that they would really, they wanted to find a kid that they felt like was legit country. And so this Dylan kid, like he did rodeos, he showed pigs, he owned horses. He was the kid who could just sort of walk through this. Like apparently when they told him he was going to have to wear vintage britches for this, he was like, I've always wanted to wear britches, which is just a, crazy thing for a child I love that. By the way, this is also the reason why Philip Seymour Hoffman's not in this movie. I mean, because... He hates britches? Uh, well, no. He's <laughs> I mean, a non britch guy? He wants to I walk mean, around in what the... What do they call it? Long johns? People always said uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman refused to wear britches. No, but uh, PTA wrote the role of H.M. Tilford for him. But at the last moment, I was like, you know what? I, I, I need to distance myself from him. I need to have something that doesn't connect me to the other movies that, that sets this movie apart. One other weird thing though about the casting of Dylan Fraser is, you know, they're like pulling from a really small pool of kids. I think there's maybe eight or 10 kids in his school that they were looking at. 
the day that the casting director is supposed to go over to the mom's house and like talk to the mom and like be like, no, really, let me tell you more about this production. You know, I know your son met with us at school and now I want to tell you more about it because we do think your son is really interesting. She was driving to their house and she got pulled over by the cops because she was going 75 miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour zone in rural Texas. And the cop who pulled her over was Dylan's mom. And when she looked at her driver's license, she was like, oh, I think we're supposed to meet later today. Uh. <laughs> I don't know why Dylan never acted again. Because like you read reviews from this time and they were like, and we have the next Daniel Day-Lewis. This kid is incredible. Eddie was just like, nah, I'm good. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. This is Gil Ozeri. You may know me as the guy who eats food over a garbage can or my wife's cute little companion with the ass that won't quit. Or you may know me from Comedy Bang Bang. I play Dr. Sweet Chat and Ned Bellinella, the busiest man, or Irving Sardinas. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to say how much I'm going to miss Scott now that he's dead. What? What do you mean he's not dead? Well, whose funeral was that? What? Who the hell is Gary? Wow, okay, well, I guess I want to wish Comedy Bang Bang a happy 15th anniversary. Wow, I always have the best time on CBB. It is so much fun to do, and Scott makes me feel warm and welcome and extra wet. So here's to another 15 years. Keep listening to Comedy Bang Bang wherever you get your podcasts. That's right, Ruba, they should go do it. Yes. They should, Ruba, right? Yes. Shouldn't they? No. What do you mean, no? Yes. That's what I'm saying. Go do. Yes, Bruba go do. Bruba go do. That's right, Bruba go do. I want to just go back to Daniel Plainview I, because there's so much to unpack here, and, and we're going to get into it. Daniel Plainview, I think, represents a very unvarnished unsympathetic look at Paul Thomas Anderson. Really? The idea, yes, of what it means and what it takes for a director to make their movies. Right? This idea of dogged persistence. This is the life of a director. I think the life of an artist is very similar. Obviously, capitalist tendencies may be you know, a little bit more fuzzy, but working in the dark, chiseling away, pulling yourself through the hardest times, fighting against everything to get an idea from your head onto paper into a place where you could get an actor attached to it, then to raise the money for it, then to go make it, then to edit it. The persistence, the drive, all of these things. I think this is PTA looking at himself and going, I can relate to this kind of mentality. 
I don't think that PTA is, you know, taking a bowling pin and smashing it over, you know, the head of Lionsgate or whoever's making his movies if they don't make it right. But I do believe that like that energy to make it the way that you need to make it at all costs is very similar. I think that's why directors love this. I think this is why comedians love this. You can hear every comedian talk about this movie. I think the reason why they love this movie and I think why a lot of actors and directors of this movie is because it's like, I relate to Daniel Plainview. I am this person. I respect what he is doing. Well, weirdly related to that, there's that Saturday Night Live episode where Bill Hader does Daniel Plainview if Daniel Plainview was a host of a Food Network show where the whole thing is about him going around and like trying to drink people's milkshakes with a gigantic straw. Bill Hader maybe does a better Daniel Plainview than Daniel Day-Lewis does himself. My name is Daniel Plainview. This is my son and partner, H.W. Plainview. I'm an oil man. I travel from state to state searching for oil-rich fields which I can drill on. But when I'm not doing that, I'm on a countrywide quest for my second love, the perfect milkshake. Welcome to my show. Okay, Amy, you didn't know I was going this direction because you just walked me into my second point. (laughs) This is great. I love this. I love how we've just connected here because my second point about Daniel Day-Lewis is I think he might be one of the greatest comic actors out there. (laughs) I think he's playing comedy in this movie to a point that is amazing. And I know I've called him a lot of things, a vampire, a loner, Paul Thomas Anderson's inner monologue, I'm going to go one step further and go, he is Will Ferrell with gravitas. (laughs) Like he plays Will Ferrell-esque characters just grounded. Like if you put Daniel Plainview next to Ron Burgundy, they are the same character. They are just dogged, (laughs) bullheaded dummies. Like I would love to see Daniel Plainview as Anchorman, I just, when I was watching this movie, it makes me understand why PTA wanted to do Phantom Thread. The whole reason why Daniel Day-Lewis did this movie is because he loved Punch Drunk Love. And PTA wrote this script not knowing uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, but he wrote it in his voice. And I think that Paul Thomas Anderson did an amazing job with Adam Sandler and Punch Drunk Love. And Phantom Thread is a comedy. This movie also is a dark horror comedy. And I think you could see Will Ferrell do this. If you made, if if Adam McKay and Will Ferrell made an oil movie, you could see this. You could see this. And you have uh, John C. Riley playing the uh, the role that Paul Dano played. I'm in. I'm fully in because this is at the root of it. This is a battle movie. Yes, it's a boxing movie, it's but this Talladega is Talladega Nights, man. It's it's rival Talladega Nights. A hundred percent. And I mean, what we know about this, like when you said that you thought that this was who Paul Thomas Anderson might really be, my first thought was, I think this is who Paul Thomas Anderson and most directors are afraid they might become. So it's almost like you put your the worst version of what you're scared you might be out there because it's a character that you relate to, but you're trying not to be. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, he's almost the warning. Don't go this way. I am Scrooge of Christmas future. This is not where you want to go. 
and it is very true about directors getting just maniacally fixated on things. I'm in love with one. When he's shooting something, my God, he could be sitting at a computer and the table could be on fire and he wouldn't even notice. But that said, like what we also know of Paul Thomas Anderson is that he actually is weirdly funny and that he's very up to date with funny things. Like when the Magnolia tour was going on in 2000, you people asked him at the at, in this one piece, I think it was in The Guardian, like, well, who do you want to work with next now that you've worked with basically every single person in one single movie? And he named two people. He said Adam Sandler and Daniel Day-Lewis. And then he just made those two things happen. But to list Adam Sandler at that time, to give Adam Sandler the role that made everybody realize that Adam Sandler could do roles like that, it takes a really amount of like, not just attention to staying up to date with real comedies, but like thinking deeper about dumb comedies. Because at that point, Adam Sandler was dumb comedy guy. We changed what we think of Sandler because of Paul Thomas Anderson seeing that. But also Paul Thomas Anderson saw a sketch on Saturday Night Live where it was like a talk show that Adam Sandler was hosting all about like his breakup with his ex-girlfriend. Like that was the whole... Oh, I remember that one. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And that was like he saw that other side, that vulnerability. And I think that to be this cocky, like when he puts the napkin over his head to block his mouth so his son can't read his lips to kind of insult the guy at the restaurant, the way that his ego is so like, fuck you. Like the end of the movie, this last, you know, 15 minute, I don't, I mean, Quentin Tarantino says there's like no real set pieces in this movie besides the 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 oil Derek blowing up. I would argue that that final sequence is a set piece, but whatever, that moment where he's with, um, Paul Dano. And I want to talk about this relationship. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. That is played. Like you watch, he is a milking moments. Yes, it's a beautifully acted performance, but those levels, he's not Bill the Butcher here. Well, he is delighted to be making fun of him. He's delighted to have one up on him. Yes. When he's yelling drainage, it's comedy. If you would just take this lease, Daniel. Drainage! Drainage! Eli, you boy. Drain dry. I'm so sorry. If if you have a milkshake, and I have a milkshake, and I have a straw, there it is. That's a straw, you see. Watch it. My straw reaches across the room and starts to drink your milkshake. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. Don't. And you know what I think is so funny about this is like when Daniel Day-Lewis wins the Oscar for playing Daniel Plainview, he tries to make a joke in his own Oscar speech, but people aren't used to trying to accept the fact that this man is funny and it gets absolutely no laughs. Absolutely no laughs because it's like you're watching this man and he is so intense. You're like, surely this guy is just terrifying and serious. That's how I kind of picture him in my head. Even though I try to keep hearing that he's not like that, that he's blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, he's a really serious, scary whittler. He terrifies me. So he gets up on stage for his Oscar for this character who is so terrifying, makes a joke and gets zero laughs. My my deepest thanks to the members of the Academy for, for whacking me with the handsomest bludgeon in town. Uh, I'm looking at this gorgeous thing that you've given me and I'm thinking back to the first devilish whisper of an idea that came to him and everything since and 
It seems to me that this sprang like a golden sapling out of the mad, beautiful head of Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> I love that. Everything I've seen, and like, you even see him, I think it was in that, was it the musical of eight? Remember that movie that he did? The, oh, the uh, one, nine, nine and a half. Nine right? and a half, yeah. right, yeah. Right. Like, he, in that, he had very limited time to prepare, but he plays this, like, very open, bon vivant, and he's like, I didn't have much time to prepare, and I do think that that's probably more like him than not. Like, I've seen pictures of him now since he's retired, and he looks like a weird skater. Like, there's nothing, like, he just, I think, is a... A consummate professional. Yeah. He's like Timothy Chalamet's uncle. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. He's I like, know. Hey, let's go to Melrose and buy some weird shorts. And, and it's funny because like Paul Thomas Anderson, when he was making this movie, he would get kind of hammered. Like, wasn't he always in character? Wasn't that, what is that like? Isn't that crazy? Isn't that terrifying? What is going on when he's always in character? And well, this is him talking about what Daniel Day-Lewis is like in character and also the Daniel he gets a piece of. I think the impression people might get about Daniel is that he's very serious. Yes. Right. I do. He's do not? He's not. I mean, I, I no, he's not. Uh, what is an example? Like, what does he, what, like, for him, because I've heard these stories about him staying in character for, like, months, weeks at a time. Months. Months at yeah. a time. So he does do that. Absolutely, he does that. But I know it sounds bizarre, but it actually, from a director's point of view, it's incredibly helpful. You have your own sort of three-dimensional character living there for you, so you, you just kind of follow him and, and, and film him. He has, I, I, honestly, for the world's greatest actor, like the worst taste in television. What does he watch? Um, he was particularly obsessed a few years ago with Naked and Afraid. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I know. It's so funny. I was working with an actor who was on a show called Black Sales. It was like a star show. And they're at some event. And Daniel Day-Lewis came up to him and was like, I love Black Sales. It's my favorite <laughs> show. And was like, just like so excited about this like pirate show on stars that, you know, I don't think many people have seen. And no offense to Black Sales. But it was so funny that he was so like giddy to meet a star of a TV show that he liked. Oh, wait, now I'm really caught up in what it's like to just be poor Daniel Day-Lewis walking through the world where, like, you are delighted and charmed by things. You have a sense of humor and everybody just stares at you whenever you make a joke like, <gasps> Daniel Day-Lewis is known for all these extreme things. Oh, when he was doing the crucible, he built a house. He learned how to be a cobbler, whatever. He carved a canoe when he did Last of the Mohicans, right. a movie that I, I deeply love. So all these things are interesting and great. But what you don't hear about Daniel Day-Lewis is, oh yeah, on this movie, he would send pig's heads to me. Or on this movie, he would really um, fire a gun. Like, you know, it's like a lot of these method actors that we hear stories about, like they're so into character that they only drank, you know, lemonade every day and they got themselves sick. I don't think he's that kind of actor. I think he is an actor who is like, I am in character. I remember when he was doing Abraham Lincoln. I am in character. Uh, When he was doing uh, Abraham Lincoln, there was a picture of him at a restaurant eating by himself. And he kept the voice of Lincoln while he was ordering and eating. And I think that there's a part of him, like Heath Ledger in uh, Batman, we talked about this too, where he's working on the character. He's committed to the character because this character was created, I think, a lot behind closed doors. It was Daniel Day-Lewis doing this work. It was him calling PTA, asking a question, 
then hanging up and then working more and trying to figure out who this person is. Like the voice is, you know, based on these old recordings of John Houston, right? He's going deep to figure out what is going on here. You know, he is someone who has a process in which he needs to be this character 24-7 for him to bring a truthfulness to it. He doesn't have to actually hurt somebody or be a dick to somebody. I think that that's what people take method acting to be sometimes. Well, I think that that's what some method actors also take method acting to be. Right. But then there is that story that does sort of follow him around from this set, which is that the actor who is supposed to play Eli. Well, this is what I wanted to talk about. Yes. Yeah. That the actor who's supposed to play Eli lasted, some people say a week, some people say a month, some people say a month and a half. Who knows? Whatever it is, this actor did not finish the role. And part of the word on it at the street, which is just word, is like, Daniel D. Lewis was just so fucking scary that this guy could not handle it, that this guy could not stand up to him in the scenes, that it just was not working out, that it was too much, that he's too overwhelming. Kel O'Neill is now a director and, and also was an actor, and he described it like this. When people ask him, like, oh, we heard you couldn't keep up with him, you know, uh, that that was too intense. Kel O'Neill says, there's something about that story that I understand that's super compelling. We have this hunger for stories about great artists. It's something that we want to believe about, Daniel. You know, anyone who's really good at what they do, that they're somehow so remote from us, you know, and what they give to the world is so incredible that, of course, I couldn't handle this thing. But he goes on to say that, you know, it was, wasn't exactly like that. He auditioned for There Will Be Blood, didn't hear anything back for a year. And he's like, filmmaking is this kind of alchemy. You know, some directors I've worked with who very few people would say are better directors than Paul had a way of making me feel comfortable. Um, and for some reason, even though every other actor I know who has had a relationship with PTA and that they were all were super positive and where they did their best work, that just didn't happen with me. He then went in and had a meeting with PTA and was fired. And he said, but it had nothing to do with Daniel Day-Lewis. You know, it wasn't drinks every night with Daniel on set. You know, he's like, but there is a fundamental decency to the way that Daniel Day-Lewis comports himself in these environments that gets lost in the shuffle of these rumors. He's like, after we did our first scene, he came over, he shook my hand, and he said, sort of in character and sort of not, welcome. And that set the tone for where that person isn't your enemy. And I'd be cautious now, especially when he's not doing this anymore, about making him so mythical that there's no acknowledgement of the human being there. I mean, it's tricky. I don't see how you could give a more emotionally complete answer than that. But it does also feel still sort of difficult to articulate even. Like, I found an interview where it sounds like Paul Thomas Anderson and Daniel Day-Lewis are like alluding to something being off, but it sounds like they're having a hard time articulating it. And it sounds like they're also being very careful not to single out this actor and be like, it's his fault, you know? But they're talking around it almost in just a way that makes me feel like the way I sound when I'm like, the vibes are off, man. The vibes are weird in here. But after a couple of days of work, Paul said, um, I think you should see something. So I went to see something with him. And the scene that that we reshot, in fact, we kind of found a different way to do it. And it was it was a blessing. But I saw this. <laughs> Is that what it is? Is that what it's going to be? That's not going to work. That's it's just not going to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't a. It, it felt. It felt like a. Like one was radically off course. We all needed to collect ourselves after a week or whatever it had been to say it, it, it's not 
It's not exactly what it should be. I'm not quite sure how to say exactly what it should be, so I have no good direction. Wait, to you give. said that to him? Yeah, it's, this I, I mean, is not. Well, that was the that was the understanding of what was going on. You don't on. have to say it. And so that's tough. And then it's also just tough for for Paul Dano. Like he's the guy who's just cast to be Paul, the brother who shows up in that one scene. Like, hey, come here. I know where you can have some money. And then he's got what four days to replace Eli. Right, and I think they, you know, they weren't supposed to be twins like that, right? Yeah, they weren't supposed to be twins. I like that they're twins. I like that they have that little kind of double take that they add where Daniel Day-Lewis shows up at the farm for the first time. He's like, oh, huh, 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 that little weirdness about it. Well, and I'll, I'll say this too. I was listening to something that Quentin Tarantino said, talking about the movie. He goes, if I, if I was to give any note to it, the only weak link in this movie is Paul Dano. He's not good. And, you know, and I respect Quentin Tarantino's opinion and, and he calls PTA like his only uh, true uh, contemporary in making film. And I thought that was really interesting to say because Daniel Day-Lewis needed someone else of his caliber to keep up with him because this is a two-hander. This movie is at its core two-hander. It's this battle between these two people. It's it's a, you know, it's like we said, capitalists and Christians. And I love Paul Dano in this movie. and I was fascinated by him. And I think that if Paul Dano was even more like Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Master, I don't think it would have worked. There needed to be this small town innocence to him. And like he gets drunk on a, or high on his own supply in a, in a way. Like he get he started at a place and he does more and more and more. But I do believe that Paul Dano goes toe-to-toe to him really well. And I think to make him... I, I like the Davy and Goliath energy here. Well, yeah. I mean, it could be done differently, but I think that that's important. Like, he needs to be weaker to make this an interesting battle, I think. On no, someone. that's exactly it. Like, if it was like Joaquin Phoenix in this role and it was just two men yelling at each other... Right. It would be a little samey. And what's interesting about the Dana performance, and I kind of go back and forth on it too, because when I watch it, I feel uncomfortable for some reason. You know, it doesn't feel natural, but I think it's because in a way it feels sort of deliberately going against the grain of this character. Like the Paul Dano, he seems sort of like soft and blubbery and in out of his depth a lot of the time, you know? And you can't get a beat on that character, I think, as quickly or as easily as you are able to get one on Daniel Plainview. Like you're right. We know who Daniel Plainview is in his core right at the beginning. And there's something more slippery, I think, about the Eli character. You know, when he's early on saying, like, well, let's talk about money for the church. If we decide to drill for oil and if the well begins to produce, I'll give your church a $5,000 signing. 10000 Do you want to find someone else that's going to come up here and drill, Eli? Make the investment and do all the hard work that goes into it? I can just as easily hunt for quail on another ranch as I can here, so no, I'll happily be a supporter of your church for as long as I can. For the bonus only. In that scene, you can believe in him. Like, you can believe that he believes that he really cares about his church. And his ego kind of creeps up on you very slowly. You know, when like 15 minutes later, he's like, hey, you should really let me give a blessing to the oil well. He sounds a little bit more sure of who he is in the world. He sounds a little bit more like confident, but he's also being confident in a way that's like kind of soft bunny, kind of creeping around the corner. I understand you've asked the people to gather around and watch the well begin tomorrow. Is that right? right. I will bless the well. Before you begin, you should introduce me. 
You'll see me walk up towards the oil well, and when I be Derek. You'll see me walk up, and then you could say my name. When you walk up? Yes, you'll see me walk up, and then you could say, the proud son of these hills who tended his father's flock, and then you could say my name. That's fine. But because he is that a little bit of an amorphous blob, I think that it leads into the fact that Daniel Plainview doesn't take him seriously. It feels like he's easily able to railroad this guy when he's not. That he plays it so soft that he kind of blubbers and fools us, and he definitely blubbers and fools Daniel Plainview. I don't think Daniel Plainview sees him as a rival. I think if Daniel Plainview had a sense of who Eli really was deep down, deep down that this man was going to be a thorn in his side, he would just be like... Honestly, maybe it's more tactical that I just let this man do this blessing and like move on with my life. But because he treats him like he's weaker, I think then everything gets even more aggravated and like set into motion. And then it sets up this like battle where the whole rest of the movie is them trading off, bending the other person to their will. You will swear in front of my church what I need you to say. I will make you swear in my mansion what I need you to say. And just kind of trading off this power struggle because I don't think that it got off on the right foot from the beginning. So it's one of those things, like, I feel weird about this performance, but I also see why the weirdness plays into how everything unfolds. I love what Daniel Day-Lewis says to him at the end. You know, your brother was the smarter one. Your brother was the one who saw the opportunity, took the opportunity, made the most of the opportunity. You, You did something different. And I think that there is a contempt for this character because... This character tried to play him and he doesn't get played. Like he wouldn't even go meet up with the old man to talk to him about getting that tract of land. Like he just let it go. Yeah. When he's done, he's done. When the townspeople are arguing in the opening scene about like whether or not they want to let him, he's like, I'm out. I'm not doing this. I don't care. But what I will say about this performance and this character that I think that people don't really realize, or maybe I'm wrong, but I think I'm right, is Daniel Plainview made Eli. He saw what Plainview was doing and he started to like incorporate it into him. Not to say that they were the same person, but that dogged pursuit, that ability to wrap people around his finger. Like that first moment when Plainview watches Eli do that sermon. Oh, the get out of here ghost one. Can we play that? Because I love that whole scene. Get out of here, ghost. Get out of here. Don't you dare turn around and come back. For if you do, all the armies of my boots will kick you in the teeth. And you will be cast up and thrown in the dirt and thrust back to perdition. And as long as I have teeth, I will bite you. And if I have no teeth, I will come you. And as long as I have fish, I will pass you now. Get out of your ghost. Get out of your ghost. Get out I will gum you. I will gum you. That is uh, one of my top five favorite lines. I love it. And and I think that that moment, he's respecting him. He's like, oh, he's got game. 
right? This is, again, this is the comedy of it. It's like, oh, I, I respect what's going on here. You're a huckster, too. The same way that he sits in a room and goes, I'm an oil man, and I'm a family man, and this is what I, like, he is watching him play that game. Yeah, and I think it means he respects him and he doesn't respect him in this kind of equal measure. I don't think he believes that he's as strong as he is, but I think he believes that he's a phony. And so he like cannot respect him fundamentally for being a phony, but he also acknowledges it. Like, I think that, well, it's tricky, right? Because like, if this character is, as everybody says, based on Amy Semple McPherson, do you know a lot about Amy Semple McPherson? No. Fascinating woman. So, you know, like when you're driving through Echo Park and at the tip of Echo Park, there's that gigantic round building that kind of looks like a coliseum. Yes. That was her old church. And Amy Semple McPherson was this kind of spiritual faith healer who shows up here in the 1920s, young, blonde, attractive, and like synergizes the church with Hollywood. Massively popular. Like we're talking like bigger than that guy who built the praying hands in Oklahoma popular and who opens a church, Oral Roberts. And like she then got a radio show. She was this national figure, like devout, worshipped. And then she gets exposed as a huckster because she fakes her own disappearance. And when she reappears, people find out that she just ran away to Mexico with like a guy she had a crush on. It kind of emerges and her image is never really the same after that. Mm. But you cannot underestimate the power she had. And she's having it at the same moment that Eli is. It's sort of, it's kind of like being there at new media. Like I'm right. a preacher who realizes what I should be doing now. You you hear a little bit in his voice at the end. It sounds like he's got a radio show. And and you see the way that he's dressed now and the way that he's like wearing his religion. Like, I think it could all start that giant from the right. Cross. <laughs> yes. And I, but yeah. I do think that like Plainview made him because I th- there's a part of him that also wants to be right. Like, why is he showing up on this day? And when he shows up, he shows up when Plainview's at his weakest, right? And he and he's trying to manipulate this weak old man to get him to give some money to him, right? And he's still and, lying to him. He's like, I don't need your money. I'm fine. Like, I'm yes. good. Yeah. It's the and, lying. And I think that there's something fascinating. Like, he bred this person who isn't as smart or as good. And... And that breakdown, that moment that Paul Dano does at the end, the, okay, well, I'll say it. It's the, you know, it, it's the, the, the reverse of the other scene, the scene where he's at the church and he's like humiliating Plainview. Like he's doing it, he's doing it for show, slapping him in the face, just loving every minute of it, right? Like he loves it. Getting revenge for also being literally kicked in the ass a couple scenes before that by Plainview. You know, it's like. Right. One person believes in money and one person believes in God. And they're just fighting over it and being like, you have to swear allegiance to my faith. And I think that this is what this movie is about. It's a struggle for power. There's something more appealing to the way that Daniel Plainview has power because he is just saying, I want this. I will manipulate it, but I want this. I'm not hiding what I want. I want the best fucking deal. I'm going to get the best fucking deal. I mean, he's like lying when he calls himself a straight talker because he's not. Sure. But Eli is not. Eli is the liar. Eli is the snake. And that's the difference. In a way, I find it like almost a little reductive because like this film is in essence about three liquids. It's about oil. It's about holy water. And it's about blood. You know? 
And it's just these three fluids are kind of pumping through the whole thing. It's like which liquid matters most in any given minute. And then even within blood, there's like, you know, parallel sets of brothers, phony brothers and truthful brothers, parallel sets of dads, false dads, real dads. I don't know. It feels kind of to me like you walked into one of those fun house mirrors and it's just like mirrors facing mirrors, facing mirrors, facing mirrors. Like it's a sm- it's a small world, but it all keeps reflecting back on itself like this idea and these liquids. Well, then let me go back and say this. And this is why I feel like plain view. I mean, he obviously is the hero of this movie. I wouldn't even say he's an anti-hero. He is the hero because there's something about his drive that is so pure. Well, if you believe in the America capitalism that we've been told we have to believe in, he's just, he is the hero we keep being told we're supposed to believe in. That myth doesn't have in it, and you're also nice. Although he really puts up a front of being nice. When I get rich, I'll build schools. Well, everybody here will be raised up. And maybe, well, though his men don't seem to be bringing their families, even though he says No, it looks like you're showing that he's not doing that. But at the end, he has all this money. He is fine. He is completely successful. But he's not any happier than he is at the beginning, though. No. Like, he's like with well, all because... these teacups in this mansion. It's like the complete difference from living in a dark hole. And he's the same fucking guy. Nothing's changed. This is the idea, like, you know, when people talked about the old reference, but like, oh, when Johnny Carson retired, he like kind of just immediately died. Like, there's nothing for him to live for if he's not out there clawing at stuff. And that's why, like, there's this moment at the end when he's in the bowling alley and Dana wakes him up. And he's a fucking wreck. Like, he's a wreck. His son is left. And you know that even though he's, like, fucking yelling at him, I mean, he, it hurt him. Like, you see him falling around. He is, he is at his weakest. And we've seen this man with a broken leg. We've seen this man crawl back, or, you know, we assume he's crawled back. But he's at his weakest. He's falling down the stairs, yeah. collapsed on the ground. Yeah, I time. Is it, like, the day that his son left? Is it, like, the month that I his son left? I think it sends him in a spiral, right? So yeah. he's on the ground. Paul Dano comes in. He's like, Mr. Plainview, your house is on fire. And he's, you know, going to the bathroom, washing up, trying to be crystal clean and presenting this attitude. And you watch Plainview get up. And like Popeye, he opens that bottle and fucking chugs whatever is in there. And that's the spinach. This is the thing that makes him live. Competition. Like, this is his reason for being. His reason for being is having it all, winning at all costs. It's not about just being the richest person, not just being a giant success. It's about taking someone and shoving their fucking nose in it. The way that he goes over to those men at that restaurant, embarrasses them, just gets in their face, drinks their whiskey. And, you know, you have this scene and I think that, you know, obviously that's stupid. I'll drink your milkshake. Not it, that line is wonderful. It's become memeable, but it's a fucking scary line. A scary line based in full truth, by the way, and which I think everyone knows this story. Uh, but I will repeat it here because why not? Uh, it was a real quote. I drink your milkshake. It was from uh, congressional transcripts from the 1920s teapot dome scandal in which. Allegedly, but people went through and couldn't find it. Really? Okay. Yeah. Right, you guys, right, so according to Anderson, yeah. he says, I think it was Albert Fall who was asked to describe drainage. And he said, well, if you have a milkshake and I have a milkshake and my straw reaches across the room, I'm sure I embellished it and changed it around and made it more plain view. But Fall used the word milkshake. They found milkshake like somebody said it more recently. Somebody said it in the early 2000s. Somebody used like the milkshake analogy. You played an SNL sketch earlier where we're seeing 
you know, this just kind of being played just for jokes and bits. And I get it. Like, I do get it. I don't want to be like, oh, but it, it does take away the power of that scene to a certain degree. Because when you watch that scene, the turns and the twists, like they're, they're, that might be some of the best acting I've ever seen. They really go after each other in such an interesting way here. I, I, I think you leave this movie unsettled. There's no finality. There's no conclusion, right? It, the, the movie is called to an end by the main character. I'm finished. He calls his own out. That's it. He wins. I, I would do. You, do you see it any other way? Well, when I look around, the modern landscape of how America is, yeah, he wins, right? I mean, this is what wins. This person has kept him going. Like this, this is the battle that he needed to win. Like, and we're what's set up. Everything is set up. Whatever the obstacle is, he will conquer it. It may take a crawl to the town. It may take. Uh, a negotiation with this old man, he will never be duped and he will get his revenge. The only person that gets a little bit of a comeuppance on him is his son because his son leaves. His son leaves respectfully. His son leaves in a way that's probably the most hurtful to him because his son doesn't try to fuck him over. Yes, he could create this idea like, well, now you're my enemy. It's not that. He knows it's not that. You know, I think he's trying to find something, you know, he, he can't share. But I, I but I do believe that that's the only person that was able to fuck him. And if you don't think that he's going to continue to find ways to, like, fuck over his son's deal in Mexico, you'd be, you know, like, but I, but I do believe that, like, that's the only person we see that gets a leg up on him. Well, so then let's talk about, as we're wrapping up then, the big Roger Ebert question. Is this movie great? Or is it just the kind of movie we call great? Because here on the show, we're always talking about, like, do we not give comedies enough of a chance? Are there a certain type of movie that we just assume is an important, like, major Oscar-winning movie? And with this movie, what I come down to is, am I impressed by this movie or am I moved by this movie? Like, I'm intellectually engaged by this movie, but do I love this movie? You know, I wrestled with this as well. Um, I think what makes this movie really difficult to judge is how good the second hour and a half is right you you the first hour and a half is beautiful i mean the way it looks the way it sounds but i don't know if that's a great movie it, it it's kind of like these snapshots that second hour from pretty much the derrick exploding to the end and you're watching Daniel Day-Lewis do something that I think you could put next to any of the best performances of all time. And this is a movie where I think the performance is more important than the movie. I was on the edge of my seat watching this. And I think that that is because of a performance, but it's also the way that PTA shoots it, like the, the the distance shots, the way that you're removed from certain things, big dramatic scenes. Like you are far away. This is a movie that demands to be seen on a big screen, I think, too. It's a movie that demands your attention, that's for sure. Yes. Like you have to be watching it to care about it. Like if you're half watching right, it, yes, it's actually yes. very boring. I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, What makes a great movie? Can a great movie just be a fantastic performance? Like, can a movie house one of the best things ever. 
And can you say conversely, well, that movie is a great movie, but it doesn't have a performance equal to what Daniel Day-Lewis did. Well, that that is that is that kind of like grading it on curve. You know, it's sort of like, I don't know. My gut would be Boogie Nights is my favorite PTA movie, I think, without watching I, I them all back agree. to back. I would know? agree because in that movie, I'm engaged and I'm moved. Yes. Like I really deeply care about everybody in that movie, even as I'm watching them destroy themselves. You know, here it's much more like we're watching something that is electric and that can't be denied. I wonder that tension we feel when it sits down. This is just a thought exercise. The title There Will Be Blood implies this thing that kind of also keeps you waiting. I mean, it is literally like there's a monster at the end of this book, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Like there will be blood. And then you're waiting and waiting, 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 waiting. Murder, dead, right? We're over. And I wonder, this is so silly, but I do wonder if we would lose 15% of the tension of this film if it was just called oil, exclamation mark or no. Right. Like, is there something in the implicit breath-holding promise of this title that kind of adds to this, like, this is building. I know that this is building to blood. This movie is a jack-in-the-box. You know, ding, 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 ding. You know, you're just turning the, that handle. When is that jack in the box going to pop out? Tension is building in it. And it starts really ramping up in that scene, that that scene where Daniel Day-Lewis is on his knees and Eli is slapping him on the face. And then that moment where they kind of meet in the church, you don't hear what he says in his ear. But I do believe, well, look, if I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my uh, assumption that he says he's going to eat him. Because at the end, he goes, I told you I was going to eat you. I told you. like, And I feel like that's the moment. Like, we see this moment in the church, and he has been humiliated. And who cares if he's humiliated? Because he's humiliated in front of people who go to church, which he doesn't respect or give a fuck about. But he doesn't like to be made a fool. And Eli fucking, like, takes that moment to make a mortal enemy. And it's Eli's ego. It's Eli's want to be like, you owe me $5,000. Eli's doing his best, a paper boy from Better Off Dead. I want my $5, right? And he's like driving that through the (laughs) entire movie. And he's pushing and he's pushing and he's pushing. He didn't realize that he fucking was rattling a bear's cage. And Plainview gets up and he's like, whatever he says, we don't know what he's going to say. And at the end, he is killed because of that. He is be killed because of that. He has been sitting on that for decades, waiting for him to have a moment of weakness. And he fucking hunts him down. You see Plainview in the house shooting that gun. He's ready to go. He fucking pop buys his liquor and he kills him. And this is like... This He's like elaborate. a spider. He's literally yes. like, you came into my web. This is the elaborate twist. It turns, 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 turns. So as I'm saying this, I've just convinced myself that, yes, this is a great movie. Because that's what this does. It creates this tension. Because we don't want to see Eli win. We're on the side of the person who's been on screen the entire fucking movie. Or and we want to see is... H.W. come in and light the house on fire again. And this time they right. don't get out. Yeah. I haven't sat on the edge of my seat like that since I was watching one of the last episodes of Better Call Saul. Like, I just like, I didn't know what was going to happen. Anything could happen. And I think that like, I knew it was going to happen. Obviously I knew it was going to happen, but man, oh man, like it allows you to forget what happens. It's like Rocky is fun to watch 
And I think one of the reasons why Rocky is so good is because you know he's going to win. And you get caught up, you get pulled into how does he win? You know, and even though you've seen it before, like there's something like your brain kind of forgets it. Comparing this movie to Boogie Nights. And if anybody out there loves Boogie Nights and hasn't listened to our episode yet, please listen to that. Or if anybody's like, there will be blood is so much better than Boogie Nights. Also, please listen to our Boogie Nights episode. I think pitting these two movies, not against each other completely, but holding them in our hands as we think about this, these questions of what makes a movie great. I think you could almost couldn't have a better contrast, you know, one being so sparse and harsh and adamant about what it's trying to do. I am monumental. And the other one being like, I'm shaggy and loose and I am human driven, you know, I'm personality driven. That is a real range. Like it depresses me that Paul Thomas Anderson is a filmmaker capable of both ranges of that. And when I sit with it, to me, the answer very much is Boogie Nights. But like this is overwhelmingly what I think people list as his favorite. I always keep hearing there will be blood. And I wonder if it is that loop of like, it looks like the most important, therefore it is, or if it really is. And if it really is, I do want to hear from people being like, yes, this is the one. I, I would love to hear from people. And, and I think that the the idea is, and we're opening that up for everyone to do that. And that's why we want you all to call in and tell us, because you're going to stump. You're going to stump for these movies too. And that's, you give us a call at 424-419-5745. And you let us know, because I, I want to hear why it is his best movie. Like there are certain true things, right? Right. Like it's like, well, Daniel Day-Lewis is great and there will be blood. I think if you think about Daniel Day-Lewis's career, there will be blood is the one that you, that you're putting in your mind. Yeah. I would put this one over, over Woodcock in Phantom Thread, just in terms of the size it takes up in your brain, the size of the performance. And the way that it's iconic. But I would also say that Phantom Thread is a better movie. Right. Like it's I think Phantom Thread is a more fulfilling film because there's like a beginning and there's a middle, there's an end. This is this is I mean, what I love about this movie is it's it's relentless. The uncomfortability that I feel in watching this movie is the shackles of this life. I know that you got into secession later on, but that's what the shackles of these people are. It's this is the. (laughs) <laughs> this is the Murdoch, but you know, the Murdoch no, shackles, right? To a certain I degree. I actually had a thought of like, you could just take any still of little HW as a kid and just put it into the secession credits and you wouldn't even Yes. Notice. It creates something that neither makes you feel like, oh, capitalism is bad. You sympathize, but you also see the loneliness of it too. But I don't think that the loneliness is being critiqued. Well, yeah. I mean, it's kind of what... uh Stephanie Zaharik said when she reviewed this for Slate, you know, she said, there are epic impulses everywhere you look and there will be blood. What's missing is character development, focused storytelling, and most significantly, apart from that terrific opening sequence, any sense of raw, intuitive drama. An epic has to expand as it proceeds. This one narrows. Over and over again, I found myself respecting Anderson's choices and yet not really responding to them. Daniel Day-Lewis holder of that title, most dangerous title, great actor, is the worst offender. Da- Daniel Day-Lewis is a great actor, as he's proved, but his greatness is an impediment here. It seems he's decided that naturalism is boring and that big roles demand some kind of novelty. And I wonder that. You know, like, she also ends by saying, like, this isn't a cynical picture, just a madden- maddeningly incomplete one, and it is too emotionally constrained to be worthy of Anderson's considerable gifts. There'll be blood strives for boldness instead of just being bold. It doesn't cut and it doesn't bleed. All right. Well, let me ask one other question here. Do you think that because Paul Thomas Anderson didn't know Daniel Day-Lewis, 
Daniel Day-Lewis may have taken a little too much control as this character and run the movie a little bit off course. Cause there's these stories of, okay, well we recast this actor, they would shoot the same scene in multiple locations. You know, there are these things that I think Daniel day Lewis is bigger than the movie. And then Phantom Thread feels like, okay, I know how to do both. Now I think Phantom Thread mm-hmm. is a great performance and a great movie. The comedy pops, Daniel Day-Lewis pops, everything works. And I I think that this is maybe, and I find this with, I was going to say incoherent vice, but that's a Freudian slip. Inherent (laughs) vice has a similar, uh, has a similar issue to me. I like parts of it. I think it's interesting. I think it's well shot. Nothing that Paul Thomas Anderson does is bad, but it's like, it's not fully there. It doesn't fully feel like, yes. I mean, it is funny. He says that when... When Daniel Day-Lewis was sending him his clips of what he was thinking the voice should sound like over the two years that they were trying to get movies from it, which, of course, yeah, like, he is very much trying to channel John Huston in Chinatown. Apparently, during this stretch of time, Paul Thomas Anderson was going to bed watching Treasure of the Sierra Madre every single night. So they were both on this John Huston kick. Going to be a lot of irate citizens when they find out that they're paying for water that they're not going to get. Oh, that's all taken care of. See, Mr. Gibbs... Either you bring the water to L.A. or you bring L.A. to the water. How are you going to do that? By incorporating the valley into the city. Simple as that. How much are you worth? I've no idea. How much do you want? No, I just want to know what you're worth. Over $10 million? Oh, my, yes. Why are you doing it? How much better can you eat? What can you buy that you can't already afford? The future, Mr. Gitz. The future. But when Paul Thomas Anderson was getting these recordings from Daniel Day-Lewis, he was like, this is insane. That's like his actual quote. He said, my first impression of them was, this is insane. And he also said he felt the same way when Johnny Greenwood would send him score pieces. He was like, what? And so there is a little element of this movie of him being like, this person's sending me something nuts. This person's sending me something nuts. Fine. Let's go nuts. Let's go big. You just said something that re- recalls another conversation we had. Uh, Batman. Want to go nuts? Let's go nuts the, from the new movie, The Flash. But I was thinking about the Joker. Because when you think about like iconic giant performances, like how do you do that? That's Heath Ledger, I think, also holding himself up, figuring out this character is and doing this performance that people are like, whoa, what is this? But it works, right? And I, and I feel like sometimes a performance might break a movie. Yeah. It might break a movie, but also make a movie. Or maybe it, maybe it wins the movie. It's like competing with the own movie. It's like, I'm so big that at the end of the movie, I, the performance, will say, I'm finished. So obviously, we leave it to you. We want to continue to hear from you. Uh, keep on talking to us because in our last episode of this five-year anniversary, chance for you to pick our films You are going to get a chance to stump for what is going to go to outer space. And again, that number is 424-419-5745. Short, concise, pitch us why this is not only the best PTA, but why this belongs on the list of the best 100 films. And if you can add in why it beats Boogie Nights, that would be great as well. And Amy, we move now to our final pick, our final audience pick for our fifth anniversary month. This is a surprise, a shocker, if you will, uh, of all the movies out there. Roger Rabbit, Hot Fuzz, There Will Be Blood, and we are finishing up our series of listener picks with Children of Men. Children of Men, get ready, buckle up. Here it comes. Take a listen to the trailer. 
I can't really remember when I last had any hope. And I certainly can't remember when anyone else did either. Because really, since women stopped being able to have babies, what's left to hope for? The world was stunned today by the death of Diego Ricardo, the youngest person on the planet. The youngest person on Earth was 18 years, 4 months, 20 days, 16 hours and 8 minutes old. The ultimate mystery, why are women infertile? Some say it's genetic experiments, pollution. Why do you think we can't make babies anymore? Doesn't matter. It's all over in 50 years. It's too late. All right, you get Children of Men wherever you get your films streamed digitally, or you can go to your local public library to check out uh, apps like Canopy, uh, where you can rent these movies for free. Amy, I can't wait to talk about our final film, because at this point, you can make an argument to me that any of these belong on the list. I don't know. I can be swayed. Well, we don't get to be swayed. We just get to submit. We are submitting. I don't submit. I select. Um, <laughs> well, Amy, until next week, but a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards, which are absolutely gorgeous, all designed by Kim Troxell at podswag.com. Just find the unspooled show and you'll see it right there. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like screen tests on Stitcher Premium. And for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show, you can head on over to unspooledpod.com. <laughs>